This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation for the next week. It's great to have you here with me today. Well, we've been hearing a lot in recent weeks about COVID cases detected in our wastewater. Part of the reason why our public health experts need to rely on this information is because eligibility for PCR testing until recently was very specific. So we haven't been getting the true number of cases in the province for months. To help us learn more about what's involved in the process of checking wastewater data and how this determines an accurate estimate of the number of daily COVID cases, we are joined by University of Guelph microbiology professor Dr. Lawrence Goodrich, who is also a team leader for Ontario's Wastewater Surveillance Initiative. Doctor, hello. Hello. Also joining us on the panel today, epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and York Region's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Barry Pecos. Doctors, hello. Hello, Jane. Hi, good afternoon. I will start with Dr. Goodrich. Uh, doctor, how does the wastewater process work? In other words, where is the wastewater? How is it collected? And then how is it, how are samples determined to have COVID within them? So the uh, Ontario, uh, the province of Ontario operates what's called the Wastewater Surveillance Initiative, which is a program that includes 13 universities across the province, representing approximately 75% of the Ontario population. And um, in this program, wastewater is collected from wastewater treatment plants in a number of cities and regions, uh, approximately 174 wastewater treatment plants. Uh, and the wastewater is uh, collected every 20, uh, 24-hour uh, time intervals. And that is uh, taken to the labs at the universities where it is concentrated and the Nucleic acid, the, the RNA for the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, is, is isolated and detected by PCR, which is the same type of test that, uh, that, you know, people can, uh, get tested for clinically when, when they are suspected of having the, um, the, the virus. And then we also do genomic sequencing on the samples to determine the types of variants, such as Omicron, for example, uh, that is expected to be in the uh, wastewater. This is really amazing science. How new is this process? Well, actually, wastewater-based uh, surveillance is not new. It's been around since the 1960s. Amazing. Uh, yeah, when it was first used to, uh, to estimate uptake of polio virus ah. vaccines. Uh, and, and so it's been used in that, in that uh, way for, for a number of years, still is being used in some countries uh, to do that. Uh, but, you know, in recent years, I would say the last 10 years or so, 10, 15 years, there has been interest in its use uh, to, to uh, conduct surveillance for diseases. And, of course, in the last uh, two years, we've really seen uh, a global uptake of, of its use. So you've been doing the surveillance of wastewater since the beginning of the pandemic. It's only recently we've heard about it, I guess, because PCR testing is so limited. Yes. So uh, for the past uh, about 20 months now, the Wastewater Surveillance Initiative has, has been um, operating. Uh, you know, earlier on when, when there was wide availability of PCR testing, um, the wastewater test data was was uh, certainly used in a complementary way, uh, but as you've said, since um, Omicron and the the you know vastly decreased ability of uh, of the population to obtain clinical tests, um, basically wastewater testing is is really the only way 
that we have currently to to estimate the number of infections in the province. So how accurate is it in terms of giving a picture of how many daily cases there are in the province? And, and we know that right now, based on wastewater surveillance, what we're hearing is about 100,000 cases a day. Yeah, so it's important to understand that, um, you know, wastewater testing, because it's done, you know, from a single wastewater sample collected at a wastewater treatment plant that might serve, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that they're, and we're, and we're testing for the concentration of the virus. So there is not an exact, um, way to determine the exact number of people who are infected. So really, uh, the data is modeled, uh, by the Ontario Science Table. And what we come up with is a, is a range. So, um, you know, it's estimated that there are approximately 100,000, maybe 100 to 120,000 people um, that are being infected each day uh, with, with, um, with the virus based on the wastewater data. But it's important to understand that unlike clinical testing where individuals are tested so you, you can have a, a, a precise number of, of the numbers, even if not everybody is tested clinically, um, with wastewater testing, it, it really is uh, giving uh, an approximation. Uh, we, I want to get to Dr. Sly and Dr. Pecos in just a moment, but honestly, I just find this whole thing so fascinating uh, because it's kind of like doing a survey, um, but a, like a survey of a physical aspect as opposed to an emotional aspect when pollsters call out to get our opinions on what we're feeling about certain topics. So it's very similar in that way. So based on your sample, you can then expand it and uh, make an estimate as to the number of cases. Yes, uh, although I would say it's, it's a little different than the, the um, example that you provide because the wastewater testing will, will give you an, an unbiased um, answer. You know, it, 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 the, the virus is there uh, and the concentrations are there, and that is determined empirically. So even though we cannot give a precise number of, of the cases, um, you know, it's, it's an, a non-invasive way to, to sample um, you know, clinical testing, as I said, will give a pre- precise number, but it still relies on people to go and get the test uh, and, and to notify public health officials that they're ill. So, so as I've said, you know, in a perfect world, we would have both clinical testing and wastewater testing, and together the data uh, could be used to really determine what's happening, not only at individual level, but at a population level. Okay, gotcha. So that 120,000 cases a day we were hearing last week, would that be the peak number of daily cases that we have seen in the province since the beginning of all of this? Uh, it's, uh, it's certainly, you know, the peak um, number that we, we've been seeing since Omicron. Um, and I, I think it would be, uh, yeah, it's certainly up there with, with the highest number of daily cases that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. I should note that, you know, wastewater, the wastewater data in the problems right now is telling us that um, we're, we're seeing a plateau in, 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 in the wastewater signal. So the concentration of the, uh, of the virus has plateaued, which likely means that uh, cases are plateauing as well. So is the next evolution of the wastewater samples to start to see the cases go down rather than continuing to peak if we, if we are in fact on a plateau? We, we, if, if we are in fact on a plateau, um, I would expect that we would see cases also begin to plateau and then to decrease. The um, caveat is hospitalizations. Uh, we know that the wastewater signal is a is a leading indicator of hospitalizations uh, and, and precedes increases in hospitalizations by a week to two weeks. Um, I note that the hospitalizations are still increasing, so I, I would I would expect to see hospitalizations increase uh, for the next little while, even as 
the cases begin to plateau. Right. That makes sense. Uh, Let's go to our other experts on the panel. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, a regular here on Fight Back, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. And Dr. Barry Pecos, you've become a regular guest as well, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. Let's talk about these 100,000 cases a day. And by the way, if you want to get in on the conversation or you have a question for one of our experts, the phone lines are open, 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. 100,000 cases a day. Dr. Sly, uh, how many of, or can you, is there a way to determine or approximate how many of these cases are asymptomatic and how big of a role vaccines are playing in these asymptomatic results? Well, it's a very, very good question, Jane, very insightful one. We've known from the very beginning, if you go way back, more than two years ago, if you can cast your mind back to those early days, we've known since the very beginning that the incidence rate, the thing that people were looking at all the time, how many new cases that we've got today, the incidence rate uh, was really missing a great deal uh, of the positive virus people. Between 40 and 70 percent of the people who were, had the virus in them were not uh, showing any signs or symptoms. And that's been the case all the way through. Uh, so the asymptomatic rate was important. Now, the thing that Dr. Goodrich is just mentioning, it's worth uh, following on from that. Mm-hmm. The, the wastewater treatment does wastewater signal does include uh, the signal from asymptomatic people as well. So that's something we didn't have with uh, with just sort of trying to look for symptoms and people who were ill going around. Uh, by the way, also, uh, I've used uh, this particular technique in the UK for polio back in the late 60s. Yes, I'm that old. And also for... <laughs> You've surprised us all the way through the pandemic. Wow. Yep. And also for a, for a typhoid fever. You can trace it right the way back, upstream, upstream to the very house where somebody's actually excreting typhoid fever bacteria. It's a very useful technique. Uh, however, uh, what was your original question? See, I ramble. No, no. I'm just wondering, and you're telling me that out of those 100,000, we can determine how many are asymptomatic. And my second follow-up on that was, are, are the asymptomatic cases primarily happening because of the vaccines? Oh, probably largely. But I think that last question should be answered by our clinician, yes. uh, Dr. Pecos. So over to him, I think. Okay, Dr. Pecos, you're on. So yeah, there's, a, there's a lot to say with response to everything that we've talked about so far. So um, what we're trying to do right now from a, a public health practice perspective is use that wastewater data in order to um, get a handle on what we actually need to do in terms of masking, in terms of um, getting those vaccines, third doses and fourth doses into people's arms and, and creating a narrative that says, you know what, things are going are, are increasing in the wastewater. We're worried about increases in hospitalization. Let's act now. So that's why it's critically important to us. You know, whether people are, are asymptomatic or symptomatic, um, you know, I think that is probably related very much to to the levels of vaccine vaccine uh, coverage in the population, and that's great. That's what we want to see. And thankfully, while while the wastewater and hospitalization are related, and both are increasing, and that hospitalization is is threatening to increase further, what we are seeing in this wave, as opposed to the fifth wave, is it's not going as high as fast, and that really has to do with the number of third doses we've got, and that's why we're pushing those third and fourth doses now because we're hoping that we can continue on that trend. Let, let's talk about those vaccine numbers, Dr. Pecos. In terms of eligibility, where are we now with the percentages of first, second, third, and I don't know if you've got the data yet on fourth shots. So um, I can tell you that in, in York region, we're at around uh, 85% uh, percent with the second doses. We those, those haven't moved that much recently. Fortunately, we're almost approaching 60% overall with the third dose, and we certainly are seeing our clinics uh, being busy with more third doses now, and, and in particular among those who are 60 and 70 and certainly 80-plus in terms of their age, much higher uh, proportion have been vaccinated with the third dose, which is terrific, and we're, we're vaccinating many thousands of people with the fourth dose just now, and our clinics are booked up for the next couple of days, but there is still some availability. So, you know, the good news is that people are booking those appointments. They're going into pharmacies. We don't have a, a solid number right now or proportion that are at fourth dose, but we will have that, that number for you 
um, you know, come Tuesday or Wednesday, and we're hoping it's as high as possible. And let me put that question out to our mature Zoomer audience as well. If you are 60 plus, have you made your appointment yet for your fourth dose, your second booster? Have you received your fourth shot? And how was that experience? How are you feeling? Why did you get the fourth shot now? 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Pegas, it looks as though the fourth shot uptake among the 60-plusers will be solid. Uh, We knew going into the fourth dose scenario for people 60 and over that I think it was around 80% had already gotten their third shot. So these are the folks who are serious about getting their vaccines when the recommendation comes along. Yeah, and that's great news for us. What we have seen certainly is this sort of um, group of very enthusiastic people, and, and very rightly so, because they want to be protected, particularly before this holiday weekend, but also moving into the summer. And then, you know, the, the big challenge for us is really making sure and, and convincing those who are sort of on the fence or don't see it as urgent, um, getting those people done as well. Because really, in order to keep those hospitalizations down, it really is those 70 and 80 plus people that need that fourth dose, not only because they need that fourth dose protection, but it's also that group that had the earliest access to third dose. So their third doses that they may have gotten many months ago is now waning. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's sort of two reasons why it's so important for them. And I'll just tell you, I got my, my parents vaccinated uh, uh, today. Um, and they're in their 80s, and they were very enthusiastic to make sure before the holidays over the next while that they got their fourth dose. Well, yes, and even and you provided us with some very good information a couple of weeks ago or last week when you said that uh, people ha- have the personal choice to get their fourth shot as early as 12 weeks after their third shot uh, rather than the recommended 20 weeks. And my husband took <laughs> took uh, the system up on that and he got his at 16 weeks and two days. So um, ha- what are your thoughts around that in terms of the optimal time to get that fourth shot? So, you know, uh, the province has said around five months. And interestingly, that's sort of the middle ground between some countries doing six months, which is, you know, really trying to space them out, um, you know, to, to minimize the logistic complexity and the challenge of vaccinating so many people so frequently. And then many other countries which have gone down to four months, uh, like Israel, which saw some great results with their, you know, four months. Um, vaccine dose, so making sure you protect them before the immunity has waned to a degree. And, you know, as often happens, we in Ontario are taking that middle ground with five months. But I think it's certainly very reasonable to get it at three months, particularly, you know, again, I bring my parents into it who are practicing physicians. So if you're that kind of person that's living with kids, certainly, if you're in a multi-generational household or, or if you're interacting with people on a regular basis, especially people who are likely to have COVID, and, and, and in many cases, that is children at this point, um, then definitely I think it's perfectly reasonable to get it a bit earlier uh, at the three-month mark. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, Dr. Sly, I'll go back to you for just a moment before we get to the phones. Uh, we do have some people who want to chat about fourth doses. Uh, it, with your experience in wastewater surveillance going back many decades, what do you expect to see happen next? What will we garner from the wastewater surveillance? And you know, do you have any thoughts today on what the modeling will show that's coming out at one thirty? Well, we're all interested to see what the modeling people will say, but uh, but by looking on a daily basis at, at what's going on in Ontario, we've got, I think, four areas where we're seeing a plateau in Ontario, and the other two areas we're still seeing a climb. That's pretty much uh, expected. They're not all going to be doing the same thing at the same time. The one important thing is, and Dr. Goodrich mentioned it quickly in passing, but I think it's important enough to mention again that it is a leading indicator. In other words, we, 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 we technically, theoretically, we can get the signal from wastewater. You excrete the virus a few days before even the symptoms begin, if you could put it like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be it's two or three weeks before you end up in the hospital on some uh, serious uh, treatment. So this means that what we're seeing in the wastewater predicts what will happen further down the road. But because the peak is only being reached in some of the areas right now, the hospital peak... We might not see that for another two or three weeks, and the ICU maybe another week beyond that. So we, we, we are able to predict with this what will happen to those other peaks a little further on. And, of course, the problem with those is not so much beds, because we can go ahead and get newer beds. It's the staff. The mm-hmm. staff are 
totally fatigued in these areas and we're losing them. We're losing them not just to, to fatigue and changing jobs, we're losing them by simply day-to-day absenteeism. They're becoming ill and they're reporting in sick, up to 50% in some cases. We were talking about that on the news this morning. In fact, the University Health Network at the moment, 373 COVID-related staffing absences. So these could be people who have very mild symptoms, but of course have to stay home and isolate for at least five days, right, Dr. Sly? Absolutely. And uh, and uh, political statements to say that uh, the thing is over, we can throw away the mask, don't worry, this is just a little blip. You know, these are premature statements, and I wish they hadn't been made all the way through. We need to keep an eye on the data and make solid decisions. On that note, uh, Dr. Goodrich, did you, did you see a big difference in the cases, in the climbing of the cases once that mask mandate was lifted on the 21st of March? Absolutely. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, there's, there's a definite, um, <clears throat> if you look at the uh, wastewater signal, um, uh, which is widely available, uh, publicly available on the, um, on the Ontario Science Table uh, dashboard, you can see, uh, you know, uh, right around, uh, you know, um, the, the 21st, in some cases, slightly before that. Uh, but you see that is when the, uh, the, the wastewater signal uh, began to, to rise quite sharply. And Dr. Goodrich, uh, was there anything else um, that I didn't ask you about that we can garner from these wastewater samples that's important to share? Uh, no, just to, to reiterate what has been said before, um, you know, which is, is, is you know, the, the, um, the asymptomatic uh, cases, um, so, so those who do not have show symptoms but can still spread the uh, the virus, I think that's um, you know something that moving forward is going to become um, uh, it, it, it may, will continue to be important. Um, you know, as as people have um, been exposed to the virus or vaccinated, uh, which means that if if they get reinfected. Uh, you know, it's, it's likely that the symptoms will be decreased. They may not be there, but they can still spread. And, and I think, you know, we're seeing certainly a lot of cases in schools now. Um, certainly in my, in my kids' school, um, we're, we're seeing cases, and we know that that's happening in, in many school boards across the province. So uh, this is where I think, you know, ongoing use of wastewater um, analysis will be useful. I, I do hope that at some point um, we can begin to get back to uh, to clinical testing as well. Let's go to the phones now, 416-360-0740, Mary in Toronto, what would you like to add? Uh, I just want to um, say that I both my myself and my husband received our fourth dose last Saturday. We're both in our 60s, and uh, everything was fine. It was great and no issues, and I'm glad we had it done. And I also found out that we could get our fourth dose after three months. And I found that out from your show last week. So I was glad I was listening. Yeah, me too, because I wouldn't have known that for my husband either. Uh, Mary, no. thanks for calling in and uh, have a nice long Easter weekend if you're celebrating. Thank you. You as well. All right. Let's go to Shelly in Thornhill. Shelly, go ahead. Hi. Um, first of all, I want to wish all your listeners a happy Passover and a happy Easter. Thank you. And to you. Thank you very much. So uh, like the last lady who just spoke, uh, my husband and myself, uh, we called the pharmacy. But at first they said, no, you have to wait your five months. And I said, no, I read that if you have, you know, that you don't have to wait the five months. And my husband is supposed to be doing jury duty uh, next week, as a matter of, no, the week after next, starting. And I said, we would like to get our shots now so that he has at least the two weeks in for it to gather momentum and provide right. the, whatever immunity he can get or whatever help he can get. And then the pharmacist said, okay, you can come in today. So we had it done a week ago Saturday. Great. So, so, and we were very pleased about that. So the immunity will be uh, fully in place by the time your husband's uh, joining this jury duty. Yes, I know. And also, uh, neither one of us had any uh, problems afterwards. My husband's arm was slightly sore the next morning for about an hour, and I never even felt a thing. So oh, that's great. 
it seems to get easier for us each time we have the shot. Yeah, my husband didn't say anything about having even a sore arm uh, the day after his fourth shot. So maybe that does have something to do with it, the frequency. Um, Shelley, thank you for calling in. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Um, I guess we're coming to the end of this segment now, but I'd like to get our experts' final thoughts. Uh, Dr. Pecos, you've informed a lot of people about the possibility of doing the 12-week gap. Yeah, and and that's a great uh, thanks to that caller because, you know, of course, that's not something I would have thought of, but jury duty is a perfect example where not only are you interacting with a lot of people, that's pretty close contact with people. And that is the kind of setting where, you know, you don't know what those other people are doing and, you know, where those other people's kids are in school. And that's a perfect example of someone who is at risk because of their age or other factors really should get the vaccine early. Um, and, and that's terrific that they were able to get it. You know, the province has said five months and you just have to, you know, push a little bit, which that last caller did. So I, I think that's really terrific. And I want to, you know, we are emphasizing the vaccines. I also think it's really important to continue to emphasize the masking because, you know, while masking is, um, you know, no longer mandatory, it is, it is your choice. And I would really recommend, strongly recommend, as Dr. Moore did earlier this week, that everyone continue masking in all indoor settings. And that's just going to be really important, particularly in these two weeks after the Easter and Passover. And I want to wish everybody a Ramadan Mubarak as well, because there's, there's that holiday that's ongoing this whole month. Yes. Um, and, and this is really the time to keep those masks on. And then we can pass that peak in wastewater. And hopefully that is a true peak and then move forward uh, through the spring and then into the summer much more safely. And Dr. Pegas, just before I go to Dr. Sly, do you have any inside information as to whether the next age group, the 55 to 59, will be offered a fourth shot at some point? You know, it, it's not clear that group or, or how important it is for younger people. Um, you know, NAFI, the National uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization, has recommended really to the 70 and 80 group. And the fact that we went down to 60 in Ontario was a little bit beyond that recommendation. So I don't see that happening uh, in the short term. But, you know, we will see in towards the fall, that's where we're going to be looking at these fourth doses again for, for everyone probably. I would start with those who are 50 plus, maybe healthcare workers as well, but that remains to be seen. Dr. Sly, your final thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Copy all of that lot. Uh, keep the masks going. We still have lots of people in society who simply don't have a good immune system. We need to protect them. Dust off your vaccination record and get up to date the moment you're given the opportunity to get one. And Dr. Goodrich. Yes, uh, I just like your readers to know, as I've said before, that the wastewater data is publicly available on the Ontario Science Table dashboard, as it is in a number of public health um, uh, unit websites. Uh, I think it's important for, for the uh, the public to use this data as, as mandates, mass mandates, that, you know, vaccine passports are being lifted. Um, I, I certainly agree with, you know, the advice to continue to wear masks. Uh, but I think this data can be used uh, by the public to make other decisions uh, regarding the level of risk they're comfortable with, with, with respect to, um, to, you know, interacting with, uh, with other members of the public. Excellent. Thank you all. And I look forward to our next conversation down the road. Thanks, Jane. Have a good day. Thank you. Dr. Lawrence Goodrich is a University of Guelph microbiology professor. He's also a team leader for Ontario's Wastewater Surveillance Initiative. Dr. Tim Sly is an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson. And York Region's Medical Officer of Health also joined us, Dr. Barry Pecos. Jane for Libby, who's on vacation for the next week. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back, Canada stands with Ukraine as Putin's war hits the seven-week mark. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown. If you didn't get on to talk about fourth shots during our last segment, be sure to call Bob Comsick tomorrow between noon and one. He will be hosting a live free for all Good Friday show. 
Seven weeks ago tonight, people around the world were in shock that Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, had launched a war on Ukraine, an independent and peaceful nation. And now, seven weeks later, we have been horrified by the atrocities committed against the civilians of Ukraine in Mariupol, in Donetsk, in Bucha, and in other areas likely still uncovered. Joining us for the next segment, we have a distinguished panel to talk about humanitarian efforts to date, Ukrainian refugees arriving in Canada, and the mindset of dictator Putin as he appears to commit genocide in this illegal war. Peter Storin is president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto branch. Ruslana Zeznevsky is founder and present honorary chair of Help Us Help, a registered Canadian charity operating for the last 30 years, and Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, who teaches about the former Soviet Union, Ukraine, and nationalism, among other topics. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Good afternoon. Professor, I'll begin with you. The mindset of Vladimir Putin seven weeks in, uh, certainly certainly not uh, the outcome at this point that he would have been expecting. Yes, definitely. His plan A failed, the blitzkrieg against Ukraine. But there are no signs that he is backing off either. Um, he needs some kind of victory. And now, obviously, his focus shifted to the so-called Southeast, trying to occupy that part of Ukraine and hold it and proceed with his genocidal plans on that territory. Would it be fair to say, Professor, you, as much as it is uh, these horrific occurrences that are being uncovered, you maybe are not shocked that there have been uh, episodes of genocide in Ukraine. It is a shock, but it doesn't come completely unexpected because scholars who followed Putin, his text, his main ideologues, people around him should have seen this coming. And I mean, I personally warned, tried to warn the world about it back in 20. 20- 14 when the war started and Crimea was annexed. Let's go to our other guest uh, to get your thoughts. Peter Sturin uh, on the war to date where Ukraine is at. Um, what is occupying your thoughts these days? Well, it's uh, the entire community, all Ukrainians and not just Ukrainians, but uh, people all around the world um, are seeing seeing, as you mentioned earlier, horrific crimes against humanity. It clearly is, uh, even our Prime Minister alluded to it yesterday, and President Biden said it the other day, clearly is a genocide. It is, they are looking to exterminate as many Ukrainians as possible, or at the very least, chase them out of the country if they're not going to accept rule by Russia. So it's, it's, it, it, it's shocking. It's disturbing, and the only thing that can happen now is there's only two possible outcomes. Either Russia wins or Ukraine wins and chases them out. There's no other compromise at this point, and that's why President Zelensky and our community worldwide is saying, give them the tools, give Ukrainians the tools to end it, because that's the only way it's going to end. Professor, back to you for a second. Is that why we have not been hearing about any current or future negotiations between delegations of Russia and Ukraine? Well, as I understand, um, there are some consultations um, through telephone or video conferences, but yes, we haven't seen any any recent uh, face-to-face meetings. And um, partially, I think this is because Putin is not willing to compromise. He he needs a victory. for He will be waging this war till the very end, until he either wins it or is defeated on the battlefield. Uh, cooperating within NATO and the rules around NATO, Professor, the arms, the weaponry that is arriving in Ukraine, will that be enough? to push the Russians out and push them back beyond the Ukraine border? 
what Ukraine received so far is insufficient. Um, if you look at the reports from the Ukrainian military, in terms of firepower, there is clear Russian superiority, 41 um, in their favor. So Ukrainian, Ukrainians do need heavy weaponry, artillery systems, uh, missiles, and aviation. They need fighter jets, air support. Let's go over to Ruslana Zeznevsky, uh, who is the founder and present honorary chair of Help Us Help. We'll talk a little bit about the humanitarian aid. Uh, Ruslana, what you've been doing for the last 30 years uh, is heroic. And, um, you know, just give us a little bit of an idea of, you know, 30 years ago, how your organization began um, to the present time and what you're doing in, in the midst of this war. So 30 years ago, when I went to Ukraine, um, I have three daughters that I had biologically, and we decided to adopt our fourth daughter. And the conditions that were found in the orphanages throughout Ukraine were horrific. They remind me of what used to be in Romania, etc., where children had nothing in the orphanages. They were crowded. They didn't have the right nutrients. They didn't have any sensory stimulation toys. And at that point, when I adopted my daughter and uh, when I brought her back, she literally landed up at sick kids right away with a diagnosis of failure to thrive. At 11 months, she weighed only 7 kilograms. So at that point, we decided that we've got to do something for Ukraine. And um, even now, there are approximately 75,000. During those days in the early 90s, there was well over 200,000 children in orphanages throughout Ukraine. So it was a grassroots um, start where we got friends, uh, teachers, uh, housewives, uh, doctors, lawyers, everybody got on board, and we started to do humanitarian aid throughout Ukraine, where we uh, accompanied all the aid, and we got some very good donors that gave us the medications that we needed, And we supplied all these orphanages for a very long time, doing four routes every year uh, and servicing at least 10,000 children per route. Um, Once we realized that children also needed more than just the humanitarian aid, we expanded into doing summer and winter camps, which were based on life skills. Uh, This has continued for 30 years. And we have three generations of children that basically have grown up. The first two generations are now in their 30s and 20s. And many of those kids have become successful in their careers, have started families. Unfortunately, now with the war, a lot of those same children are fighting on the front line. And it just breaks my heart. I can imagine. Uh, You and I don't know each other personally, but we have friends in common uh, because of my my husband being Ukrainian-Canadian, uh, f- good friends of mine, Genya and Orisha, have nothing but good things to say about you and all that has been done for those children in Ukraine. Uh, what what can you do now? Well, pre- well, presently what we're doing is we're, um, after the first shell shock, we all uh, went into action. The whole community did. And everybody divided up their work. For example, Help Us Help has been uh, instrumental in getting military first aid kits to Ukraine. They're different than your typical first aid kits because they have the right kind of um, different um, um, equipment or unnecessary items to stop heavy bleeds from gunshot wounds to get people, civilians and soldiers, to the hospitals to make sure that they survive and not bleed out. So that's one of the things. So right now we've raised almost a million dollars worth and sent uh, that over for us military first aid kits. We also have are monitoring where uh, a lot of the orphanages, foster care home uh, children have landed up. And today probably about 75 to 80% are safe, but we did lose 20% because there are places where Russia occupied very quickly and we couldn't get the children out but we are still monitoring to see that they have all the needs. And we continue to send uh, medications. We continue to send uh, basic staples that they need uh, to uh, a lot of the children. We also are involved with anti-trafficking. We've started uh, an anti-trafficking project 
where we have seven points to make sure that women and children do not land up in the wrong hands. War brings out the best in people and war brings out the worst in people. Yes, we're hearing that. And so there are traffickers on uh, the border, both men and women, and these women who and children who have already been traumatized by war, by the bombs, may land up in the wrong hands. So we did a seven-pointer where we said, do not give your passport out. Take pictures of uh, who's driving you to a shelter. Make sure you send these pictures to your family. Do not separate. Um, we, you know, Make sure that you're watching for both men and women that may not, that look a little bit, you know, right. kind of... Like they, their intentions might not be good. Yeah. I understood. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, the Ukrainian refugees that are coming to yeah. Canada, but we need to take a quick break. And the phone lines are open and you are calling in. So I promise I will get to your calls. 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation through to next Friday. So great to be here with you. We are talking about the war in Ukraine at the seven-week mark, along with Peter Sturin of the Canadian-Ukrainian Congress, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, sorry, Toronto branch. Also, Ruslana Zesnevsky of Help Us Help, and Dr. Andriza Yarnyuk, a professor of history at the University. University of Winnipeg and your phone calls as well. Uh, Peter, I want to start with you for this segment. In terms of the Ukrainian refugees uh, who are making their way here after having filed applications to come and work or study in Canada, do you have a handle on where we are at in that process? Uh, yeah, actually we do. We, uh, we have an understanding that uh, it's now over 10,000 people that have arrived since the beginning of the war. Not all of them came in under the new visa program, which was only announced on March 17th. Others came through, may have had visitor visas, visas that have been open or such. So we know there's been a very large amount of people. They're arriving every day um, as well. Um, the vast majority are arriving to friends and family because housing is one of the biggest challenges, um, both for us as a community and the government, um, you know, even if you can afford to pay for it, try to find a housing accommodation for three, four, or even five people at a time. That's next to possible in the GTA. So we're working diligently for with different levels of government to provide maximum amount of assistance. And thankfully, last week the province announced yes. uh, that there is going to be at least health care coverage. That was one of the biggest concerns. We already had some emergencies that had to be dealt with, and the poor people had no medical coverage. So now we have that, and that's a huge lift. Um, and so our next step now is to, to try to address housing needs as much as possible. Temporary is doable, but, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, we have a family of four, and they need to stay with you indefinitely, that becomes a challenge for, for most people and most organizations. So how are you going to move forward with that strategy? How will you get more housing or more volunteers to take people in uh, so that they have a place to stay till they can get organized? Well, we're, we're going to rely on uh, primarily right now on the, uh, the goodwill of the community. But as I say, you know, the province is estimating forty to 50,000 coming to Ontario. We don't know, right? There's 4 million refugees in Europe right now. We don't know what that number is going to be. But if it is forty or 50,000, how do you find housing for forty or 50,000 people? Right. It's just physically impossible. So, uh, but we are, again, working with, uh, the, with uh, the provincial and the federal government. Uh, there is a lot of goodwill there. Uh, so they say right now it's, we're, it's all being addressed temporarily. People are being placed in, 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 in people's homes and, and, you know, through Airbnb and some places on a temporary basis. The challenge, now you have to remember that now apparently it's over 95% are women and children. Uh, 95% of the refugees arriving. So they, most of them are, are hoping and praying that this is only temporary that they will go back home. They will go back home yes. to their fathers, to their families. Yes. Right? So that is, that's kind of the plan for a lot of people. 
And I would think that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I would think that childcare would play a big part in all of this as well, so that the women can go and look for jobs. My son's about to take in uh, a family, uh, and and there's, you know, there's two children. One is school age, the other one isn't. Well, who's going to take care of the two-year-old? Yes. If the mother wants to go and work, which they can. Under the new visa regime, they can. They can actually go to work. But, you know, my son works during the day as well. So what do they do with this two-year-old child? And so that's going to be multiplied thousands of times. And again, it's the same story. Even if you could pay for it, try to find daycare in Toronto. Um, That is another huge challenge. So, again, it's, um, it's, it's big. Thankfully, we have so many wonderful people that are doing their utmost. Uh, we actually are, have reserved three warehouses now where we're actually collecting goods that people are, have donated and we're getting new items and such. There's so much of that pouring in. At least they'll have that to start with, anything from clothing to bedding to, uh, you know, whatever, you know, um, hygiene products. Um, people are donating that en masse, so at, at the very least, we'll have that that we can offer as support for these families. We will give out the websites at the end of the segment. If you have not had an opportunity yet to donate to humanitarian aid in Ukraine, but you would like to, uh, we will give you that information coming up as well. Uh, Ruslana, uh, what are your thoughts on, on the Ukrainian refugees arriving here, the children, the women? Do you have anything to add to what Peter was saying? No, I agree with Peter. Not only is um, a, a problem of housing, but also schooling. So we've got to figure out we're already approaching different principals. Uh, we're approaching different schools. We're trying to register certain children already uh, to see what the process is. The Catholic system has uh, a special online thing, and you can actually apply. And then we're we're approaching principals of uh, uh, Canadian-Ukrainian schools uh, that are willing to help. But again, that is, uh, you know, a number that's very concrete, but there's going to be thousands of these kids arriving. So it's a problem that the community is facing and Ontario is facing, and there's got to be a solution to uh, how to resolve this. Let's go to Doreen in Kingston. Uh, Doreen, thank you for calling. What would you like to add to our segment? Well, well, I originally called in for the last topic about the uh, fourth shot that I just booked my appointment for, but uh, this is uh, dear to my heart as well, so I just stayed on the line. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, um, I got this from a reliable source, and I'm on my way out today um, to make a donation for these wonderful people. Um at a credit union. Um, the credit unions, I believe that all of the credit unions in Kingston are uh, taking donations for the students from Queen's University. Um, and I'm on um, seniors' uh, income, and I would like to encourage, uh, even if you can do $5, I mean, $5 turns into hundreds and hundreds turns into thousands. So just encourage people, if that's all they can do- donate, not to hesitate, uh, check with your credit union. And uh, it just warms my heart to uh, see all the reach- outreach, because the Queen's uh, students have no place to go home, and they don't know if they're going to be allowed to stay in their dorms after their college time is out. Right. So, uh, yeah. So uh, Well, thank you. People yep. to make. I made. A, I was in a position to make a little bit more than that, but every five dollars will add up uh, for these uh, students from a, a wonderful country. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing us that story, Doreen. Have a nice, yeah. long weekend. Okay, you too. Uh, Before we get to final thoughts from our guests, I do want to go back to our professor, Dr. Andri Zayarnyuk, uh, about uh, the strategy at this point uh, for Ukraine against uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, Last time we talked, uh, you had some thoughts. I mean, that was fairly early on in the war. We're now seven weeks in. Uh, To it, what would you advise, Dr. Professor? I think Western strategy is working, and the main problem right now is uh, not to give up on Ukraine. You know that uh, contemporary world suffers from you know, short attention um, spans. Uh, it's been seven weeks, and we are still enjoying, Ukraine is still enjoying this remarkable support. My main worry is that, you know, after another month or so, the world will get tired of Ukraine. So 
this is my main worry when it comes to Western support now. Uh, please don't give up on Ukraine. Stand with Ukraine till the very end. And this would be also my message to the leaders of uh, Western democracy. And, and Professor, where the, the war is so visible because of satellite imagery, because of the Internet, this is a different era. People around the world are almost finding out about atrocities in real time, which would never have happened decades ago. Yes, but there is also a danger in it. We see all those images, but at a safe distance. And I don't want Ukraine to become some kind of gladiator for, for the West. I mean, we are talking about real people, yes. real death, real suffering. So please remember that. Mm-hmm. And this is not for you, James, it's for our audience. No, no, I appreciate the sentiment. Absolutely. Um, uh, Peter, Peter Sturin, I know every Sunday uh, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress is holding a rally or demonstration um, for this Sunday. Uh, are you planning anything? It's Easter, so we've moved it to Saturday, Saturday, 2 o'clock, in front of the Russian consulate, 60 St. Clair Street East, which is now actually referred to as Freedom Free Ukraine Square, Hmm. as the city has put up new signs uh, around it. So we'll be out there, and uh, the theme this week is um, uh, Stop the War Crimes. Uh, Clearly, all the the, the more and more documentation is coming out of uh, the horrific crimes against, against humanity, against people. And uh, we, we need, we're asking the whole, the whole community to come up and stand with us. And as well, if anybody's interested in helping out, ucc.ca is a website. There's a I want to help button. You can donate uh, anything from funds to uh, lodging to uh, goods. So ucc.ca if anybody wants to help. Thank you. And Peter, since you and I last spoke, uh, Zoomer Radio and Classical FM have joined up with the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, as I know the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress has as well. And and the funds are rolling into that website. We were quite impressed as an organization that uh, the money that's donated goes directly from here to the people on the ground there. So we know that the funds are going to the people who actually need it. Absolutely, with almost uh, zero administration costs, which right. is uh, which is really important because the vast majority of people that work in these foundations are true volunteers. Ruslana, final thoughts from you, uh, websites to help uh, more about your organization. We just have a minute or so left. Well, um, if people go on to help us help, um, even through Google, they will find our website and where to donate. Um, and um, every again, as Peter said and everybody else, that every penny helps. And please, as uh, the professor had mentioned, people cannot get immune and hardened to the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine. They get worse and, and more fierce, but we cannot get immune to what we are seeing on a day-to-day basis and not give up on Ukraine. We will leave it there. I thank you all for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. you. Have a great weekend. Likewise. That was Ruslana Zesnevsky, founder and president, honorary chair of Help Us Help. Peter Sturin was on our panel, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch. And Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. Jane, for Libby, I will be back with you on Monday here on Fight Back when our Zoomer squad joins us. But until then, we've got Free For All Friday tomorrow with Bob Komsik and Best of Fight Back, hosted by yours truly on the weekend, 1230 both Saturday and Sunday here on Zoomer Radio. Whatever you're celebrating this weekend, be safe, enjoy, and take good care. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.